Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Trinity Church in Carryville, Tennessee, right outside of Memphis. For more information about our church, please visit our website, trinity901.com. So we're going to break up this passage, verses 1 through 5, into three parts. We're going to look at verses 1 through 2, verses 3, and verses 4 through Five. Now, again, as I've been reminding you all along this journey in the letter of 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to his protege, and he is warning him about the situation in the church in Ephesus and what he should do as a young pastor. And Paul mentions that the Spirit expressly has said to him, that in latter times some will depart the faith. And when we hear Paul say this to Timothy and secondarily to the church as a whole, we can recall the words of Christ. Matthew 24, 10 through 11 says, And then many will fall away, notice Paul uses the same language, and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Jesus has told his disciples, he's told his followers, this is going to be the reality when I ascend into heaven. It is going to be a troublesome time. False teachers will be like wolves who will prey on the sheep. Paul is saying the same thing to Timothy. Now, if you remember from Acts, Paul planted the church in Ephesus, and Paul left them, and when he left, he had a special message for the elders that he had put in place in this church. And so in Acts 20, 28, Paul says, Pay a careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Paul is saying, guys, pay careful attention to this church, to this new church, to these people, because false teachers are going to come into your midst and they are going to cause problems and they are going to cause issues and they are going to cause trouble. Now, Paul goes on to say in this passage that The heretical teaching, the false teaching is undergirded by demonic influence. That's a challenging thing for us in modern society in the year 2023. But the reality of Scripture, the truth of Scripture is that there is demonic influence in this world that is causing great issues and causing great problems. We know that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that Satan has been conquered, that the kingdom is coming, although not here yet in all its fullness. And so he is limited in the destruction and the chaos that he can cause. But the truth of the matter is, according to the word, that This is something we should be mindful of and something that we should be aware of and cautious of as God's people in the church. That this is what is behind this false teaching that has arisen in this church plant in Ephesus 
that is leading people astray, that is causing Paul to write this letter and to warn Timothy, to prepare Timothy, and to give guidance and instruction to the people in this city. And notice in verse 2 that their consciences have been seared. Their hearts have been hardened to deception. That they have bought into the lies and that they are unable to see the error of their ways. Which is a reminder to us of the dangerous nature of sin and how it's a slippery slope. And that we should guard our own hearts according to the Word of God. That we should strive to be holy just as Jesus is holy, that we should strive to be obedient to His Word, that we should call on the Holy Spirit, protect me, guide me, watch over me, help me to live a life that is according to Your Word and pleasing to Jesus. Do not allow me to slowly drown because of sin. Help me to put to death the sin that is in my life. I've said it many times. It's one of the things that I love about gathering for worship on the Lord's Day. It's one of the things that really excites my soul on Sunday mornings is that I come to this place and I come into the presence of Jesus and I stand before the throne of grace and I open up my heart to Him and I plead before Him and ask Him to forgive me of my sins. Do not let my conscience be seared. Do not let me fall into sinful traps. Do not allow me to lead a life of sin. I admit my failures. I admit my transgressions. I proclaim to you my disobedience. Forgive me. And then knowing the hope of the gospel that belongs to the people of Jesus that he puts his arm around us and he says, you're mine, I love you, I accept you because of what I have done and you have been made right. Paul is saying, be aware. Be aware of false teachers. Be aware of the falsity that can exist in your own heart and in your own life. Verse 3. Notice it says, who forbid marriage and require abstinence. What's going on in Ephesus? What is the false teaching? What is the issue? What is the problem? One, abstinence from sex. Secondly, vegetarianism. Probably caught you a little bit off guard. Well, we know according to Romans 14, 2 and 21 and 1 Corinthians 8, 13 that this is the problem. That these aesthetics who exist within the life of the church in Ephesus, are saying that these things are not good for you. And you should abstain from them. You want to be holy? You want to be a true believer? Then don't do this. You are responsible for your own spiritual standing, your own spiritual state. This is, many scholars say, an early form of a heresy that plagued the church, the early church called Gnosticism. 
that we're seeing it in its infant form where the body is considered evil and problematic and that the soul attaining a higher spiritual state is what you should be achieving. Dr. Philip Ryken, who has a wonderful commentary on 1 Timothy, this is what he says about this verse. By forbidding marriage and changing their diet, some members of the Ephesian church were denying the pleasures of sex and food and at the same time saying that physical self-denial was essential to a person standing before God. This is a heresy. This is heretical. It's false teaching. Our our theological tradition that's grounded in the orthodoxy of Scripture says that our right standing is completely and entirely based on works. But not our work. The work of Jesus on the cross. That He has done all the work in order to save us, to redeem us, to reclaim us. And that the way in to the presence of the Father is by following after our older brother Jesus. And that's the only choice, excuse me, the only chance that we have. So verses 4 and 5. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Paul is reminding Timothy, he's reminding the church in Ephesus that everything that God has created is good. Now, I can hear you putting on the brakes in your mind because you you are thinking there are many things that are not good. There are many things that are harmful. There are many things that cause issues and problems. And it's our sinful nature that corrupts what God meant for good. So let me give you an example. Noah and his family enter the ark, and they make it through the storms, through the flood. And they come out of the ark, and theologically speaking, Noah is the second Adam, and God is placing him in a garden, and he's saying, I'm going to bless you, And you are to follow me, and you are to be obedient to me. And from you and from your lineage will come the hope of the world. And so we see in Genesis, Noah tending to the garden. A beautiful garden that God has given him post-flood in order to provide for him and to provide for his family. God is starting over again, if you will. And what does Noah do? Well, if you're familiar with the story, he abuses the fruit of the wine, the fruit of the vine. He makes wine and he drinks it, and that within itself is good. It's pleasurable. God has provided it to him. But what Noah does and what we do is we take something that is good and we abuse it. And he sins. And thus... God begins again. We live in a fallen, broken world. I mention this almost every week. And we are the ones that take what God meant for good and we corrupt it. 
And so as we encounter the things of this world, as we enjoy the things of this world that God has provided for us, the things that we do not corrupt, Paul is telling us we need to be thankful and we need to give thanks. Children, maybe you're like me and you wonder why you pray before lunch, dinner, breakfast, before a meal. I was always curious about that as a child. Why do we do this? Is this our family tradition? Well, here's your answer. That Paul is saying that when we receive food, that we are to give thanks. And this is something that is consistent with what all of the Bible says. Deuteronomy 8. We are to give thanks for the food that God has given us. He has given us something good. We are not to abuse it. And we are to give thanks. Now, children, you want to know something interesting? In Deuteronomy 8, it says to give thanks after the meal. Interesting. Then we see Jesus before the meal blessing the food and giving thanks for the loaves and fishes in Mark chapter 6. We also see Jesus giving thanks before the Last Supper in Mark 14. And then Paul mentions giving thanks for his food in 1 Corinthians 10.30. And so collectively what we are doing when we bless our food is we are stopping amidst our busy lives and our hectic schedules and we are saying everything good has been given by God to his people. And we should give him thanks. We should be thankful not only for our salvation, but all that he has given us. And Lord, help us not to abuse it. So, we've looked at verses 1 through 5. It's, in essence, a running commentary of this passage for you. And now... I want us to go to seminary. I want us to go get our Master's of Divinity degree. I want us to look back at this passage and go a little bit deeper. And so, let's just for a moment, let's all go to seminary. And I want to talk about two big words. You can go to work tomorrow, you can impress your friends, and you can impress your family. The first word that I'm going to mention is eschatology. That is the science of the last things. That's all that means in Greek. The knowledge of the last things. Secondly, I want to talk about soteriology. Eschatology, soteriology. We see both of these in Paul's seminary lecture here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Now let's begin with eschatology. The study of last things. End times. Our tradition historically has said that we are living in the end times. That the ascension of Jesus Christ to the throne room of heaven marks the beginning of the end of time. And, and we will continue to live into that period until He returns again in victory to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And so during the during the period of the end times, the church and God's people should expect problems and issues 
challenges and difficulties, even persecution. And so, beginning in Acts until today, we live in the end times. And this is where we are as God's people. And so we long and we look forward to his return. And we believe in our theological tradition, the Reformed tradition, that before Jesus comes again, that there will be perhaps greater difficulties, but we more than likely will not know. It's not a very um, thrilling and exciting version of the end times that's more prominent in other theological traditions, but it grounds us in the truth and in the reality of the desire and longing for Jesus to come again because we live in a mess. But we are a people who are hopeful because our king rules over creation and he is coming again for his people. And so Paul clearly says, if we look back at verse 1, that the church in Ephesus and Timothy and even Paul himself, that they live in the end times. That the Spirit has revealed this to him. We don't know if the Spirit revealed this to him in the moment or at some other point, but Paul is telling us that God has told me through his Spirit that we are in the end times. That is the eschatology of the Reformed tradition. People of hope living in a difficult time. And then secondly, soteriology. That is the theology of salvation, the study of salvation, the knowledge of salvation. And we see two things in this passage. One, another great theological term, limited atonement. Now many of you have probably heard of the acronym TULIP in our tradition. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. These are summaries of some, not all, of the key doctrines that we believe as those who are Presbyterian. And one of those is limited atonement. This means that when Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus secured the salvation of his people, that he knew who he was giving his life for. He tells us in John chapter 6, all that the Father has given to me will come to me. As Jesus goes to the cross, he knows that he is the sacrificial atonement for the people of God who have been chosen from all eternity. He is our sacrifice, that he is our redeemer, that this salvation is not for the whole world and for whoever might believe in him, that this salvation is for God's people through all of the ages, tribe, tongues, and nations, that he is giving his life for his people, that the atonement is limited in the sense that it belongs to them, that it was a rescue mission that he was undertaking on behalf of the Father to redeem us from sin and from death, and from misery. And so, in this passage, we see this, this description of 
limited atonement. In that, Jesus perfectly gives his life as the sacrificial lamb to save us. There is nothing we can do to further our salvation. There is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. That if we think that we can, then we are claiming Savior status for ourselves. And so the mistake that's been made in Ephesus, what the false teachers are proclaiming, is that they can improve their right standing with God by doing these things. And Paul is saying that is foolishness. That is heretical. That is false teaching. Christ has done it all. Christ has accomplished the salvation of His people. You are not a little Savior. You are not your own God. You cannot contribute to your own redemption. You have to fully trust in Him and what He has accomplished. And then secondly, the perseverance of the saints. Another aspect of soteriology that we see here. Paul mentions seared consciences, false teaching, people who have seemingly fallen away from the faith. And so it begs the question, can you become a Christian, a true believer in Jesus, Can you trust in Him with all your heart? A work that is brought upon you by the Holy Spirit. It's God choosing you, God loving you, God sending the Holy Spirit to apply the benefits of Christ to your life, bringing you to life, enabling you to see, enabling you to hear, giving you a new heart. It's all from God from the first to the last. And so when you read this passage and you think about those who are fallen away, it begs the question, If you are a true believer, can you leave the faith? And what our theology says, what our soteriology says, is no. That if you belong to Christ, that if you are in His grip, you will never fall away. That He will save you, and He will save you completely. That the Holy Spirit will protect you and guide you until the end of your days. And that you will be ushered into the throne room of grace to praise your Savior forever and ever and ever. He has you. Jesus is saying to you, I've got this. Trust in me. We would say, doctrinally speaking, if someone has proclaimed the faith and they walk away, that they were never believers to begin with in the first place. That God saves and He saves ultimately. That Jesus is perfect in His life and His death and His resurrection and His salvation. Hear this. Because I know there are many who doubt. I know that there are many here who have struggles. His salvation is perfect. It's perfect. And here's your reminder. This is why God has given us this table. Because He knows that we are prone to doubt. He knows that we struggle. He knows that this life is hard. 
And he's saying, come to my table, a foretaste of what we will do together for eternity. And be reminded of my, the body and the blood of my Son who has saved you perfectly. Yes, you live in the end of times. And yes, it is challenging. And yes, it is difficult. But here is Jesus and come and be strengthened. And be reminded that this is not only a sign of His forgiveness, it's not only a sign of all that He has done for you, it is a seal. God is saying that I am putting my seal on you. You belong to me because of my Son. And His salvation is perfect. Have no doubt. Have no fear. Come to this table and be reminded. Father, we thank You for this table. We thank You for the bread. We thank You for the wine. We thank You that it is a symbolic reminder of Your body and Your blood. That You are the perfect sacrifice. Also a reminder, Lord, that we belong to You. And that in Christ, our older brother, we will dwell with You forever. Breaking bread forever. Worshiping forever. God, be with us, draw near to us, and encourage our hearts this day. Amen.